Hello, John Elder here, Science Editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID Conversation. Today I am very pleased to welcome Professor Peter Doherty, Nobel Laureate, Immunologist, and of late, a weekly columnist who has taken on the job of demystifying science speak and explaining the work being done to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. He is the patron and namesake of the Great Doherty Institute and has been involved in research on infection and immunity for 50 years. A little weirdly though, when Peter was at high school, boys were prohibited from learning biology. Peter, what were they thinking? I think uh, the thinking was, John, that um, girls were biological and uh, boys were physical. So we learned physical science and they thought if they taught us biology, our latent uh, sexuality may become so inflamed that we'd be extremely <laughs> dangerous, which is probably true. <laughs> you you caught, <laughs> caught me unawares with that one. <laughs> Peter, look, in 1996, you and your colleague, uh, Dr. Rolf Zingernagel, won the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology, but you'd actually done the work 23 years earlier. You were looking at the behaviour of killer T-cells, the cells that, according to my favourite description, find and destroy infected cells that have been turned into virus-making factories. You wanted to know how T-cells recognise and respond to viruses in mice, and your findings were both surprising and far-reaching. The Australian Academy of Science, in an, in an interview with you at the time, said that Doherty and Zinkenagel had opened up a whole new highway that led to major advances of great significance to clinical medicine. Your work continues to resonate today at a time when half the world is in virtual lockdown because of a virus. Did you expect to see such an event in your lifetime and to spend so much time explaining it to people? No, I, John, I didn't really expect to live through a pandemic, though uh, a lot of us have been talking about the possibility of a pandemic for decades. After the Nobel Prize in 1996, and then I was Australian of the Year the following year, I found myself quite a lot on the public stage talking about science, and I discovered that I'm a reasonably good science communicator. So a lot of the message I was putting out after that was much more general than the type of immunology speak I'd been uh, largely involved with before. So, so I was talking about these issues. And in fact, in 2013, I wrote a little book called uh, Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know. Uh, it's available in Australia as an e-book. It's a bit out of date, but the basics are there. Part of a question and answer series done by Oxford University Press, uh, which has titles like the Catholic Church, what everyone needs to know, which, of course, was an infinitely better seller than my book. <laughs> well, it was then, but it might, you, you might, your sales might pick up now. Look, I've wondered if you were attracted to immunology because of the complex, even sometimes seemingly capricious nature of our immune system. For example, it's said that as many as 15% of people battling any serious COVID-19 infection that their immune system keeps operating in overdrive, even when the virus has subsided. What's known as the cytokine storm that can lead to multiple organ failure and death. How is it that the immune system does sometimes work so badly against us? John, it's, uh, this is a kind of generalisation and we don't really fully understand what's happening here. But 
our thinking is, and this is, goes back also to some earlier studies that my younger colleague, Catherine Kidzieska, uh, did with a group in China, uh, uh, at Fudan University in, in Shanghai, in fact, on the H7N9 influenza virus, which was killing people in China several years back. It, it actually was a virus that went from chickens to humans but didn't spread between humans. But Catherine and the uh, Fudan group did some beautiful work in humans, and that's where we haven't had so much information about humans. We've known a lot about mice but much less about humans. And so uh, what they found really was that the, um, the people who didn't make a good immune response kept trying to do something about the infection. And as they did that, uh, other aspects of the immune system, what we call the innate immune system, a much less specific part of the immune system, tended to become very prominent. And this is the cytokine storm effect. So what I think it is, uh, in a very simplistic way, is that the immune system that would normally, uh, the very specific immune system that would normally deal with the infection doesn't do the job soon enough and all these other backup mechanisms get turned on. But the problem with that is when you turn that on in the lung, it's such a sensitive organ and uh, in flu particularly, you fill the lung up with fluid and people can drown in their own lung fluid. Now, this, this infection looks a bit different though. Uh, there's a problem that, uh, that the blood's not oxygenating probably and properly, and that may be related to the cytokine storm, or the two things may be independent but work together to some extent. So there's a lot of questions there. But we've only known about this infection for several months, and uh, already we're getting a good handle on it. Well, yes, I mean, COVID-19 keeps throwing up all sorts of complications, uh, earlier today, I was working on a story about the extent of asymptomatic cases. Now, one small Chinese study found that up to eight out of 10 positive tests for the virus were asymptomatic or asymptomatic people. A similar result was found in about 200 women who were delivering babies at a New York hospital. And an Iceland study found that nearly half of their tests were in people without symptoms. From what I've read, there doesn't seem to be any agreement or clarity as to whether asymptomatic people are silently spreading the disease or whether they're spreading it at all. There's a conversation piece out this week from Sydney researchers that says there is no hard evidence that asymptomatic people cause other people to become sick. Some people suggest this puts the lockdown strategy in serious question, which is a big call. Others say that it makes the case for universal testing. What do you make of it? I mean, I, I would agree that we don't really know the extent to which the asymptomatics are spreading because we don't really know a whole lot about the amount of virus they're pushing out. We do know that people can transmit a virus infection for 24 to 48 hours before they become sick. So there is virus spreading from people who are not showing symptoms, but the people who remain asymptomatic, one of the reasons for that could be that the virus infection level is low, that they're not producing much virus. And the less virus you produce, of course, the less you're likely to infect other people. Um, the test we use for detecting, the test that everyone talks about, what called the PCR test. And this is, of course, exp ex uh, expanding viral genome. It's, it's basically the same test that's used to identify rapists uh, when samples from a rape victim. And it's a very, very sensitive test. 
and maybe a bit too sensitive sometimes because we pick up genetic material when there may not actually be much infection around. And that's certainly the case after uh, people who do get the infection do get symptoms, but cure. For a time, we can still detect viral genetic material, but no infectious virus. There's also that other question that keeps coming up, and that's the idea whether people can get the virus twice, whether they'll go through it and then sooner than later catch it, go through it again. I've wondered, though, after reading about how long, uh, and it can be up to, I think, eight days, I might be wrong on this, that once people have gone through the symptomatic phase, the virus actually keeps shedding for for up to to eight days. So I wonder if that's added to that confusion. What's your take on it? I I think a lot of the the reports of of, um, reinfection are likely to be persistent infection. I mean, this virus can hang around for a while. It can be excreted in stool samples, for instance, uh, for for quite a while. But but there's not infectious virus there. It's just virus genetic material. It could be this infectious virus being produced somewhere in the gut or even swallowed, uh, but it's being inactivated as it goes through the gut. So I, I, I think it's likely that the reports of reinfection are persistent infection, but uh, it's it's can be difficult to tell. If there were several different, you know, the the virus mutates. It doesn't mutate in a way that changes it dramatically, but like all viruses, it shows some mutation. You can check, check uh, through and follow lineages of the virus because of the little mutations in it. And maybe if we found a virus with a very different uh, set of mutations after we'd uh, tested someone and found them positive early, we would think it was reinfection. There's also the issue of some people of having very, very mild infection and we're isolating virus. Maybe they're not very well immune. Uh, one of the ways we could test that is actually when we get a vaccine is take some of those people who had a very mild infection, maybe didn't make a very big immune response, and boost them with the vaccine to see if they get what we call a, a secondary response. That is, if they turn on a lot earlier. Because it could be... Um, that they're making an immune response, but there's just not much spillover into the blood where we'd be looking for evidence of immunity. So you'd be, you'd be looking to give it a boost, so to speak. Yeah, you could do that. That would be one way of telling if people have been infected before, even if they didn't, say, have antibodies in the blood. That would be our normal test for infection, that someone that's recovered, got better, we'd expect them to have antibodies in the blood. But there have been reports of low antibody levels, but... One of the problems there is that we haven't had a very good field test. We have very good tests. If you can take someone and bleed them from the arm and get serum, we have very good tests, though they tend to be time-consuming for detecting antibodies, the virus neutralisation test, which is the benchmark. But what we've needed is a screening test to go out there and test large numbers of people on the basis of, say, just taking a pinprick of blood from the thumb. And those tests, I think, are getting pretty close to being good. There have been a number of them out there, but a lot of them are not much use. But I think some of the ones that are coming on now are going to be very good. And then what we need to do is actually go out and do a big survey and see how many people have been infected that we haven't detected. Uh, Less important in this country, though we should do it, than it is, say, in in Italy or, or, or New York or China. But uh, that will be a big contribution because we really don't know at this stage we still don't really know the background infection rate. And we think 
that there might be two to three times as many people infected as we're detecting. Some people think that's much higher, but I, I personally doubt it. Well, the, the, the Centers for Disease, Disease Control in the US, their suggestion, which I, I have thought makes sense all along, is that everybody when out and about should wear masks, not because the mask will protect them, but because it will protect other people, based on the assumption, because we don't know the full extent of infection, it would be more prudent to assume that every, everyone you meet has got it. What do you think? Yes, you can turn that round, actually. I mean, one of the reasons that hasn't been recommended here is that we, don't have enough, we haven't had enough masks. Uh, we're doing a lot better. A lot of the masks that are out there, that are out there actually and are now more available aren't all that fantastic. One of the things about wearing a mask, though, is it does make you behave a bit differently. And one of the best bits of advice I've heard uh, about if it is active in the community, which at the moment it doesn't seem to be very active in our community, but if it is active in the community, if you behave as though you've got it and you don't want to transmit it to somebody else, you will, even if you don't have it, you will actually be protecting yourself because your behaviour will protect you. You'll maintain social distancing and all the rest of it. It's, it's been interesting as a social experiment and, and when I go out, I, I can't go to supermarkets and such. I don't have a spleen and, and oh, uh, right. so I have that sort of vulnerabilities. But when I do go out, I see now people acting much more defensively, much more seriously than, say, even three weeks ago. Um, someone will come a little bit closer and the person will veer away. It's, it's astonishing that in a relatively short amount of time that people really are taking the message very, very seriously. And especially in an environment where at the moment our infection rate is, is miraculously so low. Well, it's good that people are doing that. I, the one place where, that worries me actually is I live right next to Royal Park in Melbourne, which is a big yeah. bushland park pretty close to the centre of Melbourne got hospitals all around it, and uh, the walking path there, they're often far too crowded. One of my friends tells me he's walking along with a metre-long bamboo stick, which he holds out to one side. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a bit eccentric. I, I actually wear my uh, bush-bashing boots and I don't walk on the path. I just go through the bush. I've suggested to my wife that she gets one of those hoop skirts. Remember the the um, sort of I think eighteenth nineteenth century hoop skirts. That might be a that might be a good kind of fashion yeah, that fashion be, statement. That, this that time. would be something. I mean, you, that, that that would be interesting. <laughs> my wife showed me actually today a, a, a little video of a guy who took one of those circular frying pan lids, a grass glass one, and then he pulled up his hoodie and he 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 got in behind this circular glass lid, <laughs> putting around it, and it actually actually looked pretty good. But I would imagine it would fog up very quickly. Oh, like a visor. Yeah, that's right. So he was using the frying pan, glass frying pan lid as a visor, <laughs> uh, and he was, he was actually uh, keeping it in place with the hood on his hoodie. Well, just when they're saying fashion's getting boring. Listen, one theory for why some young healthy doctors and nurses have, have actually died from COVID-19, and we saw that especially in, in Italy, I guess, is to do with a question of viral load. Yes. That the sickness uh, is dose-dependent because they physically ingested so much of the virus, they get sicker. Uh, another theory is a genetic predisposition. 
when you th- do, you, do you think we'll get to the bottom of that? Of, or we'll probably, we, we might find that it's both? Or I would be very surprised if it's not viral load. The people who are greatly at risk aren't just aren't so much the general ward doctors. They're they're the guys who are dealing with um, with uh, ill, quite ill patients. So they're either dealing with people who who got pretty severe infection, but like Boris Johnson, they weren't intubated. So what's happening there is they're constantly with the patient. You know, if someone's in intensive care, there's someone with the patient 24 hours a day, and they're adjusting. They, they save their lives actually by adjusting the oxygen levels. But that means they're very close to the patient. And if the patient is coughing and spluttering, whereas we're normally talking about six micrometer particles of, of, uh, of droplet particles as being the main spreader of this virus, they're getting something like one, two or three nanometer par- micrometer particles, which, which get deeper into the lung, I think. And they're also getting a lot more of it. And it gets even worse if you're intubating someone. Ideally, people who are intubating need to be in uh, a protective suit. So that's my interpretation. I think they're just getting a lot of virus. Yeah, I, mean, I spoke to an immunologist out of ANU and she said it was plausible. It just it probably just needed to be to be proven. Um, but certainly certainly a plausible idea. I look at the 1980s and I look at the HIV crisis and it was ultimately resolved or as best you can resolve it by the use of retrovirals. There was a piece this week out sort of speculating, well, what if we don't get a, a vaccine? Do we end up resolving the issue issue with antivirals? But it also suggests, well, what happens if we don't get effective antivirals? Well, so I guess the question is, well, 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 what if? What if that is the case? Well, for a start, I think we will get an effective vaccine. I'd be very surprised if we don't. We've got something like 70 different candidates out there. Uh, the only issue with the vaccine is safety, as far as I'm concerned. I think we'll get a vaccine that makes a good immune response. I'll get, I think we'll get a vaccine that stops infection. But there are some hints from some earlier studies with monkeys that uh, some types of immune response can actually make the disease worse. So we want to avoid those effects. And it's a bit problematic with this virus because unlike SARS, the original one, it doesn't grow nearly as well in monkeys. So there's, uh, we don't have as good a test system. At some point, some people are going to have to go out there with a vaccine and put themselves in the way of the infection and just hope that it works. I think it will. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's that much that's truly mysterious about this virus, quite frankly, though, though people try, try to think, tend to think there is. So that's one point. Uh, the other point about uh, antiviral drugs. Antiviral drugs uh, could be used both for therapy or for, for, for uh, prevention. Look, there are, two, there are three ways out of this, this whole situation. The first way is we get a vaccine. Now, that the earliest I've heard that a vaccine is likely to start going into people in any significant numbers is September, and that will be the MVA vaccine from Oxford University, modified vaccinia yeah. Ankara. It's a... Uh, it's a uh, vaccinia, that's the virus that was used to eliminate smallpox. These are big viruses. They put some of the COVID-19 protein in it, and, uh, and, and it's a vector system. It's this, this virus has been used over and over to try and make AIDS vaccine and for all sorts of things. So it's been into a lot of people, but not with the, um, the COVID-19 protein in it, of course. 
I think that that, that will probably be in people by, by September. It's being tested actually at Geelong in the CSRO lab in ferrets. That's part of the preclinical testing. So, yes. so that's vaccines. But there's a lot of other vaccine strategies, alternative strategies, that I think would probably, uh, probably actually make better vaccines, but we'll see how it goes. And what we may be looking at with uh, vaccines is, for instance, we prime with one vaccine and a month later we come back and we boost with another one. That may be very important, especially for older people who don't make such good immune responses. But there'll always be an issue with people, even if we got a good vaccine, with people who make very bad immune responses. Some That may be due to age and it could be due to the fact they've got a damaged immune system. So the other way of getting around this is to have antiviral drugs. Now, as you said, HIV, we never made a vaccine. Virus mutates too much. Uh, it copies back into the genome. Vaccine's almost impossible. Uh, and I, I, I don't think we're going to get a vaccine. Some people do, but I really don't. Uh, so we handle it with drugs. And so what, what an AIDS patient does is take two or three drugs. They, they're basically, I think, uh, drugs aren't really my field, but I think they're all designer drugs, that these are drugs that were made from knowing the structures of proteins, and they designed the, the, uh, the, the, X-ray, the, the structural biologists, we call them, we used to call them X-ray crystallographers and chemists, designed molecules that would fit those proteins and stop them doing whatever job they do. And so uh, I think the AIDS patients all take three different ones. The reason they do that is to stop mutants emerging. If a mutation emerges away from one, uh, one limiting factor, then it's very unlikely that the other two will happen as well. So, so you take a cocktail, same principle you use in cancer therapy. Um, so those drugs that will keep AIDS down, you don't cure AIDS because it's back in the genome, those drugs that will keep AIDS down can also be used as what we call PrEP, and that is that people who put themselves at high risk of AIDS can take a, a drug called Truvada, which has two of these antiviral AIDS drugs that are also used for treatment. And if they take those every day, they're just not going to get AIDS. So there, there are several things there with drugs. Firstly, we could use drugs, if we can find drugs that uh, eliminate the virus early on, that may stop the late disease. And then it will just be like any other disease. If people get sick, we'll treat them. And if, if we can treat them and they don't die, then we can open up and we just treat it like any other infection. As long as we've got a treatment, we're fine. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is if we have people who, who, who can't benefit from a vaccine or if we can't get a good vaccine, we could use the equivalent of HIV prep. Everybody could take a pill every day, which would stop them getting the infection. Now, for older people, that's nothing. I mean, they all take four or five pills a day. If you pick them up, they rattle. So uh, that's nothing. Just an extra pill, what the hell? Uh, and usually they have to have someone to give them the pills because we can't remember what we've taken. So uh, I'm 79, by the way. So, um, so that's the other, other possibility that we, we do uh, prep with drugs. So you can bet your life there's a hell of a lot of people working on drug development, both doing drug screens and doing... Uh, doing uh, uh, intelligent drug design. Now, if you want to talk to someone about this, and I think it's a good topic to pursue, uh, get in touch with Mark von Itstein at, uh, at the Glycomics Institute at Griffith University. He's the guy who developed Relenza, 
the very first anti-influenza drug. He did that as a young guy in Melbourne. It's a designer drug, and he can take you through that whole story, and it's a great story. And he's got he's got a candidate drug for COVID nineteen out there already, I think. Uh, so, right. but like uh, like vaccines, they have to be tested, and uh, they have to be safe. Uh, it's much easier actually to, to test a drug for safety than it is to test a vaccine. Now, there's another possibility, and that is the monoclonal antibodies. That is, we make very, very specific antibodies against this virus, and we make them in culture, we make them in big vats, and uh, we can use those either for prevention or treatment also. I guess the question is, I mean, we already, I mean, anyone half sensible goes and gets a, a influenza, seasonal influenza vaccine. I suppose if, if this thing hangs around, it'd be, as you say, taking, a, I guess, a daily prophylactic. But to what extent do you see this as a trial run for uh, um, future pandemics um, in terms of how we manage them socially and, and, and politically? Yeah, I mean, it's... And, a, and, and, and medically, of course. I mean, it, it does look like a horrible pandemic because a lot of people are dying. Uh, and, and, you know, the stories from New York and Spain and so forth are horrific. And personally, uh, people that are saying, oh, we're past the peak, I, I think they're full of it. I mean, honestly, I think once they pull the social restrictions off, uh, there'll be a lot of big ramp up in cases. But but we Do don't. You, what, overseas or here overseas, or everywhere? Uh, overseas. Yeah, right. here here we may have got it down to a level. Even if we do get a bit of a ramp up, we can handle it. We'll just have to be very careful and very watchful. But I, you know, I really do commend uh, the the politicians, uh, the prime minister, uh, the people in his cabinet. The state premiers, I really think they've uh, they've done a fantastic job here. And even though in in many things they've had to do things that were way against their, their political instincts, but they've they've stepped up to the plate and they've done the right thing, which really gives me a lot of gratification because I was worried Australia was going down the same libertarian neoliberal nutty road that uh, that America's gone down, and and which will actually kill a lot of Americans. Yeah, I think we're I think we're incredibly fortunate, and uh, it, I've actually been finding myself having a great deal of optimism because of the response that when people just have to get on and actually do something, well, you know, we actually did it, and perhaps we can emerge and be a a force for good in the world, which I think would be a good thing. Look on the Doherty website; it says that your current focus is increasingly on the public communication of science and on defending an evidence based. Uh, view of the world. Now, your terrific book, The Knowledge Wars, uh, certainly makes that case. Yeah. To what extent do you think this crisis will encourage people to embrace that view? I, I you know, my, I think my best books, The Knowledge Wars, I think it's a useful book. It, it got well reviewed in the Australian, but I don't know if any Australian journalists ever read it. But um, it's, it's, uh, I thought it was a useful book. Uh, yeah, I've written six books now on science and the scientific life. Uh, the last one was, you know, travelling like a scientist and, and sort of talking about places I've been. I, I'm very keen to try and get people to engage with the idea of evidence-based reality because, you know, we, we evidence, and uh, I mean, nature doesn't care about us. I mean, we're, we're of no interest. Nature doesn't have a brain. It just operates by the rules of physics and the rules of nature. So unless we engage with evidence and try and understand where we stand in nature, we're, we're at increasing risk. And though the government has done wonderfully well with uh, COVID-19, of course, they've done horribly with climate change. 
I guess that's the point of the question really is that is that yes we're all very alert to COVID-19 because it's it's happening to us it's certainly affected our daily lives and it's provided a real uncertainty but of course you know uncertainty underlined has underlined the whole climate change debate I think for, for many people it all seemed too hard for governments it's all too hard we now have a now situation where we actually have to do something so I guess I guess it does bring me back to that question, you know, do you think this crisis will encourage people to to embrace the view of a, an evidence-based view of the world? And perhaps more importantly, or equally importantly, to start giving scientists their due at the moment. Scientists are an essential service. And uh, this is, seems to be their time when they are perhaps important to people, to ordinary people. Yes, I, I, I think populism and... and uh you know, some of the craziness of the internet and so forth has, has led in a sort of attitude that expertise doesn't really matter very much. It uh, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, when you, need, uh, when you need medical attention, you go to a garage mechanic or uh, you go and talk to your hairdresser. But, uh, but for a lot of other things, that's about the equivalent of what's been done. Uh, Trump, for instance, has massively hollowed out every area of expertise in American government that he could get to and has done enormous damage to the United States that they will later realise and very much regret. And a bit of that's gone on here over the years too. And it didn't just begin with, uh, with the coalition. It's, it's also happened under the Labor governments. So, so basically I hope we return to a stage where we start to listen to people who actually know something. But if you watch the opinion programs on ABC, which I tend to do until I can't stand it anymore, I mean, uh, the drum and all these things, uh, it's only with COVID-19 that we've actually started to see some people actually talk in terms of evidence. It's all opinion. Look, I think think that's right. We had a social researcher on last week who who talked about there'd been that slow polarising away from um, of opinion, people moving away from experts, tying them up with questions of elites and getting to the point where how they felt about the world carried more more weight than what the evidence would tell us. I mean, look, your your Twitter account actually is a great resource in, in public debate, I've got to say. Um, we had a psychologist on Lynn Bender a couple of weeks ago and I, I think it's her new Bible, actually. Uh, I hope we I actually love the old King James Bible. Uh, uh, I was brought up with it. I think there's wonderful stuff in it. Uh, and also uh, I find that when I quote from the Bible, actually the, the, the quote doesn't exist. I've made it up. I've, I've taken some bit out of the Bible I remember from Sunday school uh, 70 years ago and, uh, and and adapted it for my own purposes. I do the same with Shakespeare. So, but I well, I guess some people would say that both, both of those, both of those, uh, both Shakespeare and the Bible are works in progress. But look, with your getting back to your Twitter account, you, you've been raising concerns over the China bashing here and and abroad, but also the protests in the US against social distancing and businesses being shut. Um, it's it's quite entertaining to read, and I can almost see you shaking your fist in the air. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, you think I'm, I'm ranting. Yeah, well, it's, it is a bit of a rant, Twitter, isn't it, really? You, you've just got to be careful not to be too extreme with it. Sometimes you go over the top. I, my um, publisher, who, who was at that time Louise Adler at Melbourne University Publishing, got me into Twitter, thinking it would help sell books. I think it's actually just taken a lot of my time. 
But it is interesting to be out there in communication with a broad range of people. Though, of course, you do have the problem that you're either followed by people who think like you or people who uh, who desperately want to see you crash into the earth. <laughs> they're they're often obviously. more interesting because the, the function they serve is a straw man. You know, they come in with some ridiculous thing and then you can set them up. So that's more fun usually. The, 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 the social media echo chambers, but look, I, no, I didn't think you were a rat. I, I could actually feel you feeling passionate against it, um, and and I know that you've, especially with the stuff over over China bashing. Well, I'd, China, I'd like to hear the China thing. I mean, you know, Trump is in real trouble. Well, he's in real trouble intellectually anyway, but but he's in real trouble because he's really uh, he he ignored the warnings about COVID nineteen. He he then. He then uh, fabricates. I mean, we all know that he lies all the time and he's always got to blame someone else. I mean, Trump never takes responsibility for anything. So the buck always stops somewhere else. So, so part of his strategy is to start a process of China bashing and bashing the WHO. That's, that's typical Trump. We've all seen him do it. We all know that's how he operates. But that, yeah. that's all part of his re-election re strategy, though, of course. Well, he hopes it'll get him re-elected. I'm not sure it will, but if it does, it's just going to be a, an even further global tragedy because the years of Trump have been a tragedy for the human species, quite frankly. He is an absolute disaster. He think, I think, has done more damage than anyone I can think of. Uh, he's, he, is, he is a catastrophe. Now, now I mean, our, our government, sometimes being a government of the right, has come, sometimes echoed some of those positions. But I see it's very disappointing to me to, to see them echoing this China bashing thing. And the reason for that is we've had a lot of help from China. We're getting a lot of interaction with China. And when it comes to defeating COVID-19, we need to work with the whole of the global community. We need to work with China and America and Europe and, and Japan and everywhere that's inputting into this. And we also need to keep in mind that this country, though we have great science here, we have great biomedical research, we don't have the capacity to produce enormous amounts of product. We can't produce enormous amounts of vaccine. We can't produce enormous amounts of, say, monoclonal antibodies or drugs. We just don't have the technology in place. And we're reliant on countries like the United States or European countries or China to help us with that. There is absolutely no point in antagonising anyone in the global community for no reason. And, the, and this business with China about investigating the source of the virus, firstly, it's an inquiry that we all know will go absolutely nowhere. And secondly, it's totally and utterly pointless. Do you think it has a moral basis, though? I, I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not really very into the moral basis I'm interested in at the moment is saving people's lives, protecting people, and seeing they yes. don't. They or their older relatives don't die horribly from COVID-19. And, and, and quite frankly, for us to take a high moral ground on anything is pretty absurd. Uh, we've got our own problems uh, in terms of morality and how we deal with people. And, and for us to take a high moral ground about other countries, I think, is an extremely dubious position. Look, I'd have to agree with you there, and I also think it's very important to make the distinction between people piling up on Chinese people, which is a disgrace, well, and perhaps raising the question of whether how how uh, the coronavirus was was first handled 
in China, whether there, whether uh, questions need to be answered there. But I'm with you on the fact that such an inquiry would would undoubtedly go nowhere. Well, it achieves nothing except to make people angry and hostile. So, so yes, it's true. I, I think we all understand. I think the Chinese basically will acknowledge that. They handled it badly to begin with. There were some local officials who suppressed information. That was a disaster. But actually, after about January, I think they were doing pretty well. They, they put the sequence out there. They were talking pretty openly. Now, we never know totally what's going on in China. It's not the most open society. But I don't have particular concerns that they're concealing anything that's major. So, so that, that, that aside, I, I think that, uh, that we really don't get anywhere uh, with, with keeping on with this, uh, this type of rhetoric because, as you said, though the, the people who are saying that may be motivated towards saying, well, we don't know really where the virus came from. Uh, personally, I mean, uh, what, what we know about the virus, I think, from the virologists is it's not a virus that's been engineered from something that was around that we knew about. So it's likely a virus that's come out of nature. Now, whether it came out of nature straight into people or whether it came out of nature into a lab and escaped from the lab, we don't know. And quite frankly, I don't think it matters very much because what we've got to deal with is a virus and going back to, to, to that doesn't get us anywhere. But the other problem is that once you start talking that sort of rhetoric about China, even though you may have a clear intellectual view of what you're doing, some of your followers are not the brightest bulbs and that will translate into anti-Chinese uh, action. And, and there's no reason that our Chinese citizens or our Chinese visitors who are in this country could, should be subject to any hostility whatsoever. That's absolutely right. Listen, no, I've got to ask you how you did mention before you are 79 years of age and how are you travelling through this? Uh, do you manage to get out and have a bit of a walk around the block or do you feel you have a target on your back because you are a a person of a mature well, standing? Well, at the moment, the, the incidence looks very low. Uh, we're still being very careful. I tend to go down to the coffee shop and, uh, uh, you know, one person allowed in at a time so that uh, we can keep the coffee shop going because uh, the person who runs it is a terrific person and we all value her immensely. Um, I try to get out for a walk, but I haven't been getting out and walking as much as I should. Uh, if I do, I tend to walk away from people and... Uh, and either walk around the streets rather than around the park because the streets are much more des deserted or, um, or walk through the bushland of Royal Park. We're enormously lucky to be right next to Royal Park because it's native Australian bushland and it's uh, really That's wonderful gorgeous. to walk through it. Look, I've got to say, so each, each week I ask my guests who, who they're missing through this time of separation. I know you've got grandkids, and who are you looking forward to, to giving a hug to? Well, we'd love to, uh, we'd love to be seeing our grandkids, uh, both here and in the United States. We've got four grandchildren who live a few, uh, two or three miles from us. We'd love to be seeing them. Uh, and we also have two grandchildren in Seattle. Uh, and so it's the most difficult one is getting to see them. I think if we could close it down here and the restrictions went off internally, we'd get to see our local grandchildren, but the problem would be getting to see the ones in America. And, uh, yeah. in fact, uh, at the end of March, we were supposed to get on a plane that flew to the Middle East, flew to Venice, Padua, where we would have been for several days, uh, then to Madrid, then to London, then to Dallas and to Memphis. 
Now, the only the only hotspot for virus that we really missed was New York, I think. Uh, fortunately, we right. didn't get on that plane. I mean, it cancelled the trip. Oh, well, maybe next year. Maybe. or maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, next year might be a bit too soon, but we'll see. I, I hope we've got a vaccine out there and into millions of people's arms by uh, by early 2021, but there are no guarantees. And uh, But if we are going to do that, I mean, if we're going to produce millions of doses of vaccine, billions of doses of vaccine, we're going to need the goodwill of every country on the planet that has the capacity to do that sort of work. And we're certainly going to need China. Yeah, good, very good point. Look, uh, it's it really has been wonderful speaking with you today. I was, I was quite uh, thrilled to have you on and I'm, I'm hoping we can get you back on the COVID conversation soon. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy to do so. Next week, my guest is Professor Vishal Kishore, Director, Health Transformation Lab and Professor of Innovation and Public Policy, Strategy and Impact Cluster at RMIT. Among other things, he is a Professor of Loneliness. So please join us so we're not all alone. Talk to you then.